Welcome to a Tuesday edition of Locked On NBA. On today's show, Dwayne Wade turns back the clock as the Heat tie the series with the Sixers. We recap Miami's win and talk about what Wade's former teammate LeBron James can do to do the same thing in Cleveland. And we'll take a look at the Knicks coaching candidates, preview Tuesday's night's games, including what Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks can do to bounce back against the Celtics. It's Locked On NBA. Thank you so much for listening, for subscribing. Now let's get to the show. Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. All right, let's do this. Welcome to Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. My name is Wes Goldberg. I'm a credentialed writer covering the NBA for the Step Back. You can find me on Twitter at WC Goldberg. And I'm David Ramil, credentialed NBA writer who's covered the league at large for SB Nation and Fanside. And you can follow me and my writing on Twitter at TRamil13. Two big games on Monday night that we'll be recapping here. First, we've got Miami and Philadelphia, and then the later game, San Antonio versus Golden State. But let's start in Philly, David, uh, where Dwayne Wade had a vintage Dwayne Wade night, 28 points on 11 of 16 shooting, including seven rebounds, three assists, and two steals. And mostly for Wade, taking over the game in the fourth quarter when Miami needed him most. Nothing better to see if you're a Heat fan or just really a fan of the NBA, not only to see Wade back in the in a Heat uniform, in a playoff game, but to see him do the thing that we've seen him do so many times in his career. Absolutely. He was phenomenal, knocking down that mid-range shot, drawing fouls, creating plays for others, making big defensive plays, including one big strip down the stretch against Dario Saric, where he knocked the ball loose, broke free, and then was able to cut ahead for a dunk to finish and and put Miami ahead. Uh, That was the kind of performance that we're used to seeing from Dwayne back in his prime. Still capable of doing those things every once in a while. He's had a big game against Philadelphia earlier during the regular season, uh, and this was certainly reminiscent of the very best of Dwayne Wade. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, he, he took the game over with four minutes and 15 seconds left when he checked back in. Miami was only up by two at that point. He came in, immediately scored a basket off of a steal from Dario Saric, um, you know, came back, scored another another point had an assist, had a big offensive rebound that led to a Goran Dragic mid-range bucket, and Miami really pulled uh, pulled away, and that was all before he hit his dagger. Miami winning that game 113-103. to We should mention the final score. Again, tying that series at 1-1 as it goes back to Miami, and if you look at what the difference between Game 1 and Game 2 was for the Heat, other than Dwayne Wade, of course, you look at that three-point shooting. Uh, Philly made... 18 of their 28 shots in game one. For, they hit 64% of their, their three-point shots. I mean, we we know that Irson Eliasova, Marco Bellinelli, or, or you know, Beliasova, as I like to call them, was they were just on fire in game one. That wasn't the case in game two. Philly just shot seven of 36 from three-point range, or 19.4%. And so you think that there might be more. You thought that after game one, there would be a regression to the mean in game two. That's exactly what happened. And now that might go back the other way for for Philly in Game Three, where they might shoot at a high, a little bit of a higher clip than nineteen percent, and it, and I think that was the biggest difference for the 76ers. I wonder if that's going to go the other way when they get to Miami because they're going to need that three point shooting. That was a big part of their game plan um, in those first two games. They were just again they were hitting the shots in Game One. They weren't hitting the shots in Game Two. Yeah, I mean that's the the key of that seventeen game win streak was 
having Ben Simmons initiate offense, pushing the pace, and then finding any one of a, a number of shooters, J.J. Redick, Ilyasova, Bellinelli, anybody outside on the perimeter capable of knocking down that shot at a high rate. Uh, and on against Miami in game two, that shot wasn't falling. It was a combination of a couple of missed shots from Philadelphia's perspective and also tighter defense on Miami. Uh, they just they did a really good job of trying to make things difficult for Simmons. Not that that was reflected in the stat line, but they were pushing him, uh, you know, push uh, guarding him all the way up court, mm-hmm. uh, making things difficult for him as he was trying to create plays for others. Uh, and, and it certainly worked for in Miami's favor. We should also mention Dolan B did not play for the second time in this series. Uh, and Hassan Whiteside, who is the logical matchup against Embiid, after only playing, I think, 12 minutes in Game 1, played only 15 minutes in Game 2. So both Miami and Philadelphia going small. Philadelphia starting with Irsan Ilyasova in the game. Miami eventually favoring, again, Kelly Olenek, who played 33 minutes compared to Whiteside's 15 in Game 2. Uh, so both teams starting to go small, but you wonder if any of that stuff will change if and when Joel Embiid makes his first appearance of the series. Yeah, uh, we have no idea what Game 3 will look like at this point. Uh, if Embiid's in there, the book is out. I mean, obviously, uh, this will be his first taste of the playoffs. He changes things dramatically. What worked very well in Game 1 for Philadelphia was the fact that they were able to push the pace as much as they were, and Miami wasn't able to respond. And then a guy like Eliasova, who stretches the floor, I think, more effectively than Embiid at this point and, and doesn't demand much the, the ball in the low post, kind of changes the way Philadelphia runs their offense and it plays more to their strengths and more to Miami's weaknesses. You know, Miami wants to control the pace, slow things down. And so even with Embiid out there, that might actually wind up helping Miami. It might play into their hands uh, and and let them do what they do best. And it will certainly keep Whiteside out there in a much more effective role than what he's seen over the last two games. Yeah, the Heat need to continue trying to control the pace if they're going to win this series. They still, the pace got away from them a couple different times in that game too, but Ultimately, they got the win. Uh, but let's move over to Oakland, where the Warriors beat the Spurs 116-101 to 101 in Game 2. They take a 2-0 lead in the series, and they did it behind a combined 63 points by Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson. The Spurs tried a few different things in that game, David, including starting Rudy Gay at small forward, but it just wasn't enough to even the series. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's much uh, that they can do at this point. Obviously, the Spurs, uh, for the rest of the playoffs, will be without Kawhi Leonard. Who knows if they'll ever wear a Spurs uniform again. Uh, but against the Warriors, they were pretty clearly outmatched. It tried the best to kind of stay with them, and I think they were pretty evenly matched during the first half. And then, as Golden State is wont to do, they started stretching that lead in the third quarter, and more and more it just seemed like my uh, like San Antonio had no answer for that. Uh, that's phenomenal shooting. Look, it was a big night from LaMarcus Aldridge, finished with 34 points, 11 of 21 shooting, 12 of 12 at the free throw line. So he, he was making his living there. But at, at the same time, you can't stop guys like Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson when they're fully engaged. Um, not a big night from Draymond Green, their other all-star who was out on the floor. Uh, he had just nine points and two of nine shooting. But overall, a really strong showing from Golden State, still without Steph Curry. Yeah, and three-point shooting was a big difference in that game. Uh, the Warriors making 15 of, of their 31 three-point attempts, so 48% of their three-pointers, while the Spurs only made four of 28, uh, or 14%. So that was a big difference in that game. But still, you know, I want to go back to what you said about Aldridge, 34 points on 21 shots, and and they had the lead at halftime. I This game to me, David, I want to know what you think about this. I'm curious, but... It seemed like it, this that first half was almost the last gasp that the Spurs could muster in the series because I look, I know this is going back to Texas for Game Three, 
I, I just don't see a way that Spurs can can win this thing. I, I, it was a long shot to begin with, but that first half, that really did seem like the last gasp to me. I don't know that they can muster anything more than what they showed in game two, to be honest with you. They got the pieces that they have to play at their best. Um, maybe you can get a little bit more shooting from Ginobili. Maybe Patty Mills connects on a layup or two. Uh, you know, he finished seven of 16, so it's not like he shot particularly poorly, um, but you can get a little bit more production maybe out of Gasol. I mean, Again, you're, you're hoping that any one of these players, as old as they are, uh, as experienced as they are, might be able to turn back the clock the same way we saw Dwayne Wade do in the first game on Tuesday on Monday night. Um, but it seems a little bit less likely, especially when Golden State is as deep as they are, as talented as they are. Um, you know, I don't know that Golden State is concerned about going back to San Antonio. They've won on the road at every point over the last few seasons. They know how to do so, even without Steph. I, I think that they're still the much better team. They're the second seed for a reason. We knew all year long that they weren't really concerned with the regular season. They were going to flip the switch. We've seen that to some extent, uh, and I think there's still another level for them to reach, and whether they do it against San Antonio or in the later rounds of the playoffs remains to be seen. But for now, the Spurs seem pretty clearly overmatched. Speaking of flipping the switch, that's what the Cavaliers expected to do in their first game of the playoffs. They didn't do that. They got blown out by the Pacers instead. Next, we'll talk about if LeBron has to do more to help the Cavs, even the series against the Pacers. We'll talk about that. But first, quick reminder to make sure that you're subscribed to Locked On NBA to get the podcast every day. Think of it as your bite-sized briefing for the most important stories around the league. And keep it here for daily updates on everything going on in the NBA playoffs. So subscribe to Locked On NBA on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app, the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. We'll preview the biggest games of the night later on. But first, let's get to this uh, story. Ty Lue wants LeBron to be more aggressive mm-hmm. in Game 2 against the Pacers. Le- LeBron didn't take his first shot in Game 1 until a minute and 52 seconds left in the first quarter. So he's got – there is something to that, right? And the Cavs at that point, they were already down 25-8. to eight. And and that was – really, that was the end of the game, was at the end of that first quarter. After, after Indiana made that run in the first quarter, they ended up blowing out the Cavs in Game 1. Um the, the, the series stays in Cleveland for Game 2, but do you think that that's what's going to fix Cleveland's woes here? Is just LeBron being more aggressive to start? It would change the outcome of a game or two, maybe, um, but I don't know that it's necessarily going to swing anything in, in, in Cleveland's favor. It's not going to make them the prohibitive favorite in the Eastern Conference at this point. I just I've seen this play out before with LeBron, maybe not in, so much in 2010, but I did definitely see it in 2014. I think this is just his style. I think there are times there, especially when he's already particularly checked out of a team and already looking forward to the offseason and moving on from the situation in Cleveland, where he's trying to see what else everybody can provide. Like he is so such a dominant presence and dictates so much of what a team does that there are moments where he'll kind of retract and see what else everybody's capable of. You know, he'll be more of the quote-unquote playmaker where he'll allow somebody else to take the shots, and he's curious to see whether or not they can live up to that responsibility. It's it's kind of you, you live and die by the sword of LeBron where he controls so much of what a team does, and when he's at his peak and aggressive, clearly this is a team that can beat almost anybody else in the league. But when he's not as aggressive as he's been, it's more about him kind of judging whether or not everybody else is is capable of, of pulling out a victory on their own. And I think he's, to be honest with you, I think he's checked out of Cleveland. Wow. Yeah. This I, is, I, I this, think he's David, dead. this is quite the accusation. I mean, you're saying that LeBron is basically sitting here 
in the first round of the playoffs in the Eastern, in what is a wide open Eastern Conference, and he's saying like, what's more important to me now is figuring out if these dudes are even worth hanging with. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case. What else does he have to prove? Is he going to win a title for Cleveland this year? Hell no. He's not even. He's not the best. They're not the best team in the Eastern Conference anymore. I do think. I, I think it is important. Look, I think he knows that. I think he understands that they're not the the favorites to win a title and. In his heart of hearts, he probably knows that there's very little chance that they even win the title this year. I mean, they're just they're not nearly as good as the Warriors, let alone the Rockets. Right. But it, it I think it does matter, at least for his legacy, at least to make the finals again, right? He at least he can keep it going to eight straight finals, and that he can at least hang his hat on that. But and, and I'm not saying that I don't want to take too much away from game. I still think that they are going to win this series against the Pacers, and I think they're going to have a decent shot to get out of the East and make the finals again. But you know, I, I feel like Indiana fans are probably listening to this right now and saying, you know what, we're taking too much away from what Victor Oladipo and the Pacers were able to do. They won that game, not so much as, as the Cleveland Cavaliers lost the game. And I think we should focus on that as well. I mean, Indiana, they stole the first game. They did something that, that no team has done to LeBron since 2012 when he lost in a first-round series against the Chicago Bulls. I mean, he's been able to win every first round. He's been undefeated in the first round for the past five seasons. So I think we should point out that Indiana had a really, really yeah. strong game. And they couldn't do anything against Oladipo, like you said. Uh, but I don't I don't know if a more aggressive LeBron, like you said, is going to fix this. That's not the answer to fix the Cavaliers. The problem with the Cavaliers is that the roster is not very good. Yeah. That's what the problem is. And, and look, LeBron's probably going to have to get out and be more aggressive in game two, and that's likely what we're going to see here. But they've got a lot of other issues to fix. Speaking of issues to fix, Oof. let's talk about the New York Knicks. Good segue. <laughs> they, but that works for any Knicks segue. Um, <laughs> like they, they are looking for a head coach again. And uh, according to several reports, they are planning to meet with a few different guys. Uh, David Fisdale, Mark Jackson, Jerry Stackhouse. That seem, seems to be their top three. They've also got Mike Woodson and David Blatt, former Cavaliers head coach. Uh, on their radar as well. But that top three, Fisdale, Jackson, Stackhouse, that's an interesting top three, a very different group there. Uh, who do you think would be the best option out of that group? Does anybody stick out to you? You know, I don't know enough about what Stackhouse, I don't know how much what Stackhouse did for the Raptors yeah. 905 team. I, I don't know what that how that translates it to the NBA level. We've seen Fisdale up close with the Heat. Um, he had a really good run in Memphis that unfortunately turned very bad towards the end there. Um, I will go on record as saying that I don't think Mark Jackson is a good coach for any team, to be honest with you. I think he hasn't learned anything. I think he's still very stuck in the, the way that he ran that Golden State team. Now, he did do a fine job of getting them to focus on defense, something that's carried over to the Steve Kerr era, but he was just too deceitful, I think. Like, he was trying to create too much anarchy in the locker room. A, a wise person once told me a long time ago that there are two types of leaders, leaders that will try to unite the people that work for them and kind of bring the best out as far as getting everybody to work as a group and others that will create dissension to see who rises to the top there. Um, and I think Mark Jackson falls into that latter category. So I wouldn't want him as part of my team, but knowing the Knicks being the Knicks, he seems like the perfect candidate, to be honest with you. He's a former player. He's got ties to the New York area. I can imagine him holding a clipboard in, in the Madison Square Garden anytime soon. I'm half I'm half rooting for Mark Jackson to take the job just to get him out of the color commentating <laughs> role. That makes uh, sense. But I don't know if I'd enjoy him anymore as a head coach either. 
Look, I think Fizdale's a really good coaching candidate, but if it's up to him, he probably wouldn't take the Knicks job. I mean, unless unless there's a specific draw to New York, or there's a, or if he's really interested in in coaching Kristaps Porzingis and making him the next Chris Bosh or something like that, Ooh. or you know, Chris Bosh on steroids or something like that, um, maybe there's something there. Stackhouse to me is an interesting option if he's willing to. Hey, look, you know, you're going to move up from the G League to a pro coaching level, but it, understand that. Like Brett Brown went into his first head coaching gig in Philadelphia, there's going to be a few years of losing. We're just not that good yet. Uh, and as long as you are patient, we'll be patient with you. And if there's that understanding, I actually like the Stackhouse idea. If you let him develop, continue to develop, because he's developed quite a bit in the G League as a head coach with the, with the 905 uh, Toronto's G League team. If you allow him to have that same sort of leash in New York as a head coach at the NBA level, I like it. I just don't trust the Knicks' ownership and management to give him that. Mm, no. And with that being said, I I do think the Knicks are probably looking for a quick fix as they always are. And if that's the case, Mark Jackson seems like the logical fit. Even if I disagree with it, that just seems like where their heads would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I think Fisdale would be a better option for that. I don't like Mike Woodson necessarily or David Blatt. I just too, too much of a retread vibe there. Um, even Blatt, really? Guys. I mean, uh, yeah, he's got that potential where he can make like a really smooth offense with Porzingis, you know, at the focal point. I mean, I don't know that the Knicks are the right team. They just don't have the point guard there. I just, I don't, I don't believe that they have the guard play there to make Blatt's system. Work. You don't think you're not, you're not high on on, on Frank Nilekina? Frank Nilekina, yeah. not as a Princeton offense guy. I would, I would honestly, I'd rather have like Matthew Delvadova. Like, what about Emmanuel Mudiay, the future over there for New York? All right, now I know you're being ridiculous. We got now. It's time to move on. Um, We've got three playoff games to look forward to Tuesday night. We'll, ta- we'll uh, talk about some adjustments that could be made in those game twos across the league next. But first, don't forget that in addition to the daily Locked On NBA show, the Locked On Podcast Network also has a daily show for your favorite NBA team. So go ahead and subscribe to your team's channel on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. By subscribing to both Locked On NBA and your favorite team's show, you'll be covered with everything that you need to know every day. The Locked On Podcast Network, your team, every day. Okay, let's start with our first game of the night. We've got three different games. Um, Washington down one game to nothing to Toronto. The series stays in Toronto for game two. Um, look, the Raptors just bested the Wizards in that first game. Even though, even though it wasn't the best game for Lowry or DeRozan, which is par for the course in Raptorsville um, in the playoffs, but their depth shined through as it has all seasons, particularly uh, OG Anunoby. He had a nice job. Uh, he did a nice job scoring and also guarding John Wall in the second half of that game. Uh, I wonder if that's going to continue in Game Two. What do you think? John Wall didn't play a great game. Uh, I expect Wall to bounce back. I think he's still finding his rhythm a little bit, but there were moments there where you kind of see the old John Wall before the injury, and I, I think we'll start to see that more and more as the series progresses. Like they don't have much time to turn it around, but I think they're capable of. Um, doing so, I mean, we, we've both heard from people within the Raptors organization or people that cover the Raptors that they're concerned with the Wizard and the way that they're set up and, and that they think that Washington provides a much more difficult matchup for them. And so that even though that wasn't the case in game one, I think we'll start to see more of that in game two. Um, we can't ignore Serge Ibaka, the trilingual Serge Ibaka, who was out. He had a really, really strong game one as well, and uh, he really helped 
kind of set the pace for Toronto. Um, but yes, you're, you're yeah, twenty three points, twelve rebounds. Yeah, yeah playoff Ibaka is a real thing. But Anunoby living up to the moment as a rookie there, understanding his role and and filling it perfectly. That was a really strong game for him. Yeah, uh, Delon Wright also twenty uh, eighteen points in twenty five minutes, made three of his four three point attempts. That and, and CJ Miles, he had twelve points off the bench, making four of his seven three pointers. So they did it from three point range, sixteen of thirty as a team, mm-hmm. uh, and that that can't necessarily be said for the Wizards, who only made eight of their twenty one three pointers. So we're seeing a trend in these playoffs as three pointers tend to matter more as as they have in the regular season in recent years. Um, Toronto. Only winning by eight points, so you wonder if Washington could still get in there. And you look at that backcourt of Wall and Beal; if they can continue to outplay Lowry and DeRozan, they're going to have a chance in any, in in any one of these games. Um, I also think that Washington needs to get more from their yeah. bench, uh, particularly from Kelly Oubre and and Sadoransky, who were their top two guys coming off uh, of the bench. There, they were a combined one of seven shooting from the field. Not great. No, them. absolutely not. And that's part of the problem is that Toronto obviously has such a deep bench. Uh, they've got a number of players that can step up and, and especially when they're hitting that shot from the perimeter, they're extremely dangerous. Um, there's still enough depth there where they can still be dangerous anyway, but with that three point shot falling, they can be deadly. And for Washington, you can't rely that much on just wall and Beal. as good as they are, as likely as they are to combine for 60 points or something like that. You still need guys to step up. Uh, Otto Porter, didn't have a big game. I think he needs to do a little bit more. And and Kelly Oubre, a guy that I know both of us think has potential to mm-hmm. be a, a, a star. You know, he's a great defender, but there were too many moments there where he didn't quite seem like he understood the moment and what was required of him. Uh, and his offense has been struggling over the last few months of the season. Our next game of the night, uh, we look at Milwaukee and Boston. Of course, the Celtics have a 1-0 lead over the Bucks in that series, the series staying in Boston for Game 2. Uh, Terry Rozier was huge for Boston in their overtime win in Game One. He had 23 points in that game. A couple, a, a huge shot at the end of regulation to send it into overtime. Uh, but really, what stuck out to me, David, was that wing duo of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They were terrific on defense. They had great net rating scores, uh, respectively, 10.2 and 16.3 in that game. To me, that duo, both defensively and offensively, dominated for the Celtics. I don't know that. The Bucks are the Bucks have the reputation of the big long team, right. but for Boston, that was Tatum and Brown. They looked really aggressive to start the game too. Like they really set that pace early on. I think Brown in particular defensively just seemed like from what I saw of him in that first quarter, he was just diving on the floor. He was making things difficult for Milwaukee's length, you know, long players there, um, challenging every shot, getting nice easy baskets at the rim, um, you know, creating plays for others as well. And, and I think. If we can see that kind of continuation in game two, um, I think Boston has a good chance of pulling out another victory there. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't expecting that. I really thought that because of the injuries and because of the star potential there with Giannis Adekumpo, Chris Middleton, Eric Bledsoe, et cetera, I thought Milwaukee had a chance to steal game one. And it looked like that was going to be the case early on. Uh, and then Boston, as they have over most of the season, they just keep finding a way to win. Everybody just finds a way to contribute. Today it's Terry Rozier. Who knows who will be in game two? Yeah, I mean, look, Boston isn't nearly as talented as the Bucks when they have all these injuries, but Milwaukee is just so disorganized, and it really is It's frustrating when you're watching them because they really should be much better. They Way too many turnovers for the Bucks. The Celtics ended up scoring 27 points off of those 20 turnovers, and yeah, a lot of that is due to because of Tatum and Brown being so aggressive, jumping those passing lanes. They combined for four steals between them. 
But also, Milwaukee just doesn't do a great job of initiating offense and getting into their offense. I mean, Giannis can't do it all as much as he tries. And as in the regular season, sometimes he does, but not in the playoffs. He can't do it in the playoffs. And and when the Celtics are going to score 27 points off of 20 turnovers, there's just... I don't trust Milwaukee's defense to make up mm-hmm. for that. So they they can't give up those easy points, especially given their defense and given that the Celtics are a team that, without Kyrie struggles to score in the half court. If they're going to do that again, Boston's going to go ahead and take this series. I don't think there's any doubt about it. They got to they got to tighten up yeah. on the tournament. Uh, do you see anybody stepping up from Milwaukee side there cuz I'm thinking it has to be somebody like Bledsoe, maybe Malcolm Brogdon if he can come off yeah. the bench. It's uh, Brogdon's kind of bouncing back from an injury pretty just, he he went 6 of 13 for 16 points in that first game. I think it's got to be Bledsoe cuz he was bad. Yeah. I mean, he had he had five turnovers to four assists in that first game, and when, when when you look when you shine the light on somebody as far as who's to blame on turnovers, Giannis also had four, um, but he's he's his usage rating is so high that that's par for the course. So for some reason, guys like Middleton and Henson had three turnovers. I mean, all these guys they're just fumbling the ball all over the place sometimes. Mm-hmm. Again, credit Boston, they were aggressive uh, going after that. But Bledsoe, you you he can't have five turn you can't have an assist to turnover ratio of four assists to five turnovers that's ridiculous yeah he's got to be a lot better yeah yeah I mean, not even to mention his four of 12 shooting night <laughs> yeah. that's that guy and i don't think bad. that i don't think that's all on rosier either i think bledsoe just took a number of bad shots throughout the game there and he just he needs yeah. to understand his role a little bit more effectively there's one thing about playing aggressive and another one of playing you know wildly and hurting your team and i think we saw the latter against uh, boston our final game of the night is between New Orleans and Portland. Uh, the Pelicans upsetting the Trailblazers in Game 1. They have a 1-0 lead in the series as that stays in Portland for Game 2. Uh, and and of all the things that jumped out uh, in that first game was Drew Holiday's defense. I mean, the Pelicans had a, a, a defensive rating of 87.4 with Holiday on the court in Game 1. That's holding Portland to nearly 20 points fewer than what their re- regular season average was. He was... He was just insane, especially at the end of that game. And he was the primary defender on Damian Lillard. He held, according to NBA.com's uh, matchup data, uh, matchup tracking data, when Holiday was on Damian Lillard, Lillard only sh- shot one of eleven from the field on on the forty-seven possessions that Holiday defended on him. So if you're if you're Portland going into this game, you're looking at that matchup, saying we've got to get Lillard going against Holiday. We've got to figure out how to get that get that happening for him. But also, we got to get something from these other guys because nobody else really stepped up for Portland when Holiday was blanketing. Them. Yeah, look, I, I, you know, Lillard has had an MVP type season. Uh, so I expect that he'll be able to bounce back. But Holiday has been so underrated for so long. He's just one of those players that can do a lot. And he's really helped save New Orleans season. As much as we talk about Anthony Davis, and, and for good reason, when DeMarcus Cousins went down, Drew Holiday really had a chance to step up, and he's done a phenomenal job. Um, you know, early in the season, I wasn't that convinced that Holiday was going to be that kind of player who could step up, but he's shown that he's he's more than ready to do so, and, and his defense was spectacular. So it, it's going to be a really interesting matchup. This is going to be a lot more fun than I would have expected. I thought, honestly, that Portland was going to go in there and kind of wipe the floor, maybe even sweep a New Orleans team that has an advantage as far as overall length is concerned. But, you know, New Orleans, to their credit, was able to steal one against Portland. So I wonder how much, you know, guys like McCollum and the others will bounce it back for Portland. McCollum really needs to step up. I mean, if you're looking at anybody here, I mean, of course, Alfaruk Aminu and Evan Turner need to do better than what you're they did. You're not counting they, on that uh, prop. They so. combined. 
But yeah, you can't count on that. But you usually Portland usually could count on CJ McCollum, but he's been bad in April. I mean, this isn't it wasn't just game one. Going into the playoffs, he was on a cold streak, and he needs to figure out a way to get out of it. I mean, in the month of April, he was only shooting thirty six percent, averaging seventeen points per game. He needs to be a lot better. And if when he's being guarded by guys like Etwan Moore and Ian Clark, and look, Etwan Moore, a decent defender, Ian Clark fine like he tries hard and that's nice but there's kind of a size discrepancy there even though cj mccollum was not the mm-hmm. biggest guy but you think mccollum could take advantage of those guys especially when lillard's dealing with uh drew holiday who is going to be probably on one of these all defensive teams um mccollum's really got to step up for them because and if he doesn't i don't know that portland has a chance no, really because outside of that drew holiday what he's doing against lillard and then anthony davis being the best player on the floor on uh, as as far as a two-way player goes New Orleans has the advantage of CJ McCollum's not playing. You know, and and this is a a really crucial time for the perspective on McCollum's career. Obviously, he plays in Lillard's shadow. They've done a a great job as individuals on and off the court to kind of highlight the fact that they're a partnership more than anything else. But Lillard, I think, in most people's perspectives, runs the show over there. And McCollum, as Mm -hmm. a complimentary piece on that team, needs to do a better job, especially in the playoffs, where so many more people are watching these games. And if he has to, you know, if he doesn't want to take on that kind of label as a choke artist or a guy that doesn't live up to the moments, look at what happened in, in, in Toronto for so long with guys like Kat Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, all-stars, Olympians, great players overall, and still they have this reputation of, of and maybe rightfully so, not living up to the moment in the playoffs. McCollum, I, I don't think he wants that kind of burden. So if he's going to step up, it has to be now rather than later. Well, you got to tune in tomorrow to find out what happens, or tonight, really, what happens. Uh, but that's all we have for today. You can subscribe to Locked on NBA on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We'll be back next Tuesday. John Corrales and Jake Madison got you on Locked on NBA tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining me, David. You got it, Wes.